Welcome to the Millerville Community Church podcast of our Sunday morning sermon series, where the Word of God is always the focus of our hearts and prayers. Although we're often considered a cowboy church, we're actually a community of diverse people from many different backgrounds who have a common commitment to our Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God. Here is a message from Sunday morning at MCC. Oh, it's good to be back with you folks. Sandra and I were gone for a little bit. We uh, had a new granddaughter arrive. A little Miss Holly's alive and well and in this world. And uh, we went and spoiled my grandson who just turned six years old. And uh, that's what grandparents do, right? So he feels special of the arrival of his sister, which he prayed for and wanted so desperately. And announced that he was going to have a sister before his mom knew she was pregnant. So some prophetic gifts rising up in that child. We, uh, it's always fun to be with your grandchildren and uh, my little Henry and I, we have a very special relationship. We, we bond uh, quite easily and uh, we uh, were driving around Spokane and swimming and going to parks and whatever his little heart desired and uh, he said he wanted to go to a store, and it was called the Boot Barn. Have you ever been to the Boot Barn? Yeah. So we went to the Boot Barn, and uh, he was looking around at the place, and uh, he wanted a cowboy hat like Grandpa, because he wanted to look like Grandpa. And then he wanted boots. And then he found a set of six-shooters that he wanted to capture. <laughs> And he's showing this to me with his big eyes. Grandpa, I was adding it on my head. This kid's going to cast me $200 or more in that one store. But it was really difficult because I remember being his age. And I had a buckskin jacket and a six shooters and all that kind of stuff at his age. And Boy, I wore that everywhere, and I traveled with my dad when he was on ministry and ordered hamburgers for breakfast, lunch, and supper wherever we went. And that's what Henry loves, too. He loves going to McDonald's and ordering hamburgers. He's just right after my... It was everything I could do not to buy everything he wanted because it was affirming my childhood. And I told him, I said, uh, maybe we should check with your dad before we start buying you firearms. So later that day, we did just that. I, I got home, and uh, the baby was born, and we were visiting, and I was telling his dad, my son, about these twin cap guns. And, whether, and he said, well, Dad, he already has a cap gun, and not only that, he also has a 22 pistol. And he takes them out to the gun range and trains them and everything. And I looked at my grandson, and he said, you already have one? He looks at me sheepishly like... <laughs> I'm being worked over, you know. <laughs> and I don't mind, which is the worst thing. <laughs> it's a terrible thing. And I, I, I think about that. He just turned six, and he's at the shooting range with my son. And, and, and my son is a very skilled marksman. He's with the United States Air Force and very highly trained. And he wants to make sure his son is highly trained. It's a dangerous thing to put a weapon in the hands of a child, isn't it? 
Now, how many of you grew up with a 22 out on a farm shooting gophers in the field? Yes, one, two, three, there you are. <laughs> Look at all those dangerous people out there. <laughs> My goodness. Anybody remember the days when you had uh, your hunting rifles in your pickup truck in the rack and you went to high school that way and they didn't arrest you for terrorism or something like that? Dangerous thing to put a weapon in the hands of a child. I remember being uh, hunting gophers and doing that kind of stuff. It was a lot of fun. We didn't think it was dangerous at all. But it is a dangerous moment, and I was thinking of my grandson holding a 22, how dangerous that could be. There is a more dangerous moment, and that's when God puts a sword in your hand. It's probably one of the most dangerous moments in history. That sword that we refer to is known as the Word of God. Probably the greatest, most controversial book in the history of the world, world is the Word of God. Most loved, most hated, most despised and suppressed, and the most read and available book in all the world. Just to remind you of a little history, because some of you are not as old as I am, all right? So back in uh, 1455, remember that year? It was a good year. 1455, a new piece of technology came out that revolutionized the world. And no, it was an iPhone or something like that. In, in that year, the Gutenberg Press was invented in Germany, right around the time of the great Reformation and Martin Luther. And they did something that changed the world. They started printing the Bible in the native language of German people from which it was being produced. And initially, it wasn't the whole Bible. You would just get a tract or sections of it because it was a new thing and they, they had this mechanical process and it would have been taken too much to produce the whole book. So they produced leaflets and things like that. And that was only in 1455. Up to that point, your Bibles that you have were all written out by hand. And only the very rich could ever afford one. And they used to take the Bible that was written by hand and ordained and decorated with all kinds of images, and it would be in the pulpit here, and it would be chained to the pulpit because someone would steal it. It was that valuable. Would anybody steal a Bible? Jolene, are you missing your Bible? She's off in Sunday school, and someone stole her Bible, I hear. So good for them. So <laughs> they would chain it down so it wouldn't get stolen. And then only the priests could read it because it was written in Latin. So no one knew the Bible. No one was biblically literate in their own language with the scriptures. It was read in Latin. And then the priest would translate and explain to them in their language what it meant. And that was all the way up to 1455. It wasn't until 1500, we're in 2020, 1500 that the first translation of the Bible in English came out by William Tyndale, who was persecuted and then uh, died for doing this horrible thing. 
of translating the scripture into our native language of English. It was a great moment in history. It was a turning point in the world. And that was just within the last 500 years or so that we have the Bible in our language. Isn't that amazing? Of a 2,000-year history, it's just in the last 500 years. In my lifetime, I started out in ministry before Internet. Oh, can you imagine? That's how old I am. Before Internet. And... Uh, I, I didn't have a Gutenberg press, but something close to it, and, and I, I, a Kostetner, which is just a step up from the Gutenberg press. And uh, I would uh, print out my sermons and bulletins with that old ink thing, and uh, I had a Bible I could carry around with me, and I went to school, and it wasn't until I was in my master's program that I had got my first computer from my mom. She bought me an Apple IIe. Yes! DOS, Apple IIe, green screen, and the whole thing, no images. It was an amazing piece of technology. But not available to me was anything but what was written in books. And I spent thousands of dollars on books that I would build a library of knowledge. And now, with your cell phone, you get access for free to all that stuff I spend tons of money on. And some of it I didn't even have access to, like the Dead Sea Scrolls were under the control of just a few men when I was going through school that were allowed to look at it, interpret it, and understand it. And now it's available online. Any of you can go and look up the original Dead Sea Scrolls, which are the, some of the oldest documents we have that uh, date back uh, for the Old Testament and confirm events in the New Testament. It was a singular event in the world when the Dead Sea Scrolls came around. But that's just really in the history of the world, a recent thing. From that time, from the time I've started my ministry in those ancient days till now, the word of God has spread all over the face of the earth. It is available to anyone who wants it electronically or in book form is the most published book in the world. You can get all the scriptural helps you ever want in it, and you can read it for yourself. And what we have done is placed a sword in the hands of the people. And it is dangerous. One of the reasons that a lot of the early people, when they were translating the Bible into the original languages, got into trouble was the church feared what we common folk would do with it. Because we were untrained, we didn't have theological background and understanding, and they were afraid of what would happen if you put a weapon in the hands of a child. And that's one of their justifications they had for not letting you have access to the Word of God. Well, what happened? The Reformation broke out, the Wesley brothers broke out, Billy Graham broke out, there were great religious movements in the last 500 years, unlike we've ever seen, where the word of God has spread out over all the face of the earth because people were picking up the sword and using it for the kingdom of God. And many have been saved over the last 500 years because of that. But too, we now see more cults, more distortions of the word of God than we ever have before. And this is the great danger of a two-edged sword that we were handed. The Bible is loved and it's hated 
and it's living between these pages of this book. When I opened up, I remember the day after I got saved, I started reading this book again. And between the, the pages here, I discovered God. And I heard his voice speaking to me. And I didn't know that that was possible up to this point. It's a dangerous thing because when you start reading it, you will find out that if you are looking for knowledge, and you will find it there. The scholar will find it. If you're a sinner, you will find judgment in these pages. It will condemn your sin. If you are a captive, you're going to find freedom within these pages. It will tell you how to be set free from the power of sin. If you're troubled and you're in turmoil, you'll find peace within these pages. All these things you can find as you read the word and as you open your heart to it. I have not seen God. I have not put my hands in the wounds of Jesus Christ, but I have heard his voice from these pages. He has spoken to me so many times, I'm still amazed. I've been doing this a long time, and uh, I've, I've been uh, Pastor John since high school. That was my nickname in high school. And in high school, I, I remember sitting down with... Uh, kids my age and saying, you know, when I open the Bible, I don't understand it. And I said, well, let's open a Bible and read it. And the problem is not the Bible or the sword. It is the person reading it and their perception and their understanding of what they're going to get out of it. It is dangerous in the wrong hands because that's why it's often hated because people who don't understand it or comprehend it when they read it are offended by this book and what's in it. There's plenty of things in here to offend you. I've been offended by it many times because it assaults me in ways I never dreamed anybody would, but it's also been my greatest joy. When I first started reading this book, I thought it was a collection of stories. Any of you been there? And I had uh, professors in college and the great scholars telling me it was a collection of myths that the uh, stories that were collected and they were, were unreliable. Then I, as I read it, I began to realize that it was more than just a collection of stories. This book, as I began to read it, began to judge my character. Have you ever felt that when you read this book? That you weren't really the judge, that it was judging you. And I don't like judgmental people, do you? People know me as a preacher. That's equal to judgmental in a lot of people's minds. And I found this book judging me. And then as I read it and I found that judgment and I endured it, I also found that it offered me redemption and forgiveness and a new beginning, which is grateful when you feel judged, that that is not the end of it. And then as I kept reading it, I read about Solomon, I asked the Lord for wisdom, and I asked the Lord for understanding. And he gives it, if you will ask for it. And I found knowledge and wisdom and understanding within these pages that I haven't found anywhere else, not from any professor or any book I've read, but only from this amazing collection of the Word of God. Then I realized I had unsheathed something very dangerous. I had unsheathed a sword in my life. 
And if you're not skilled in it, and if you don't understand what you're holding in your hands, it can be a dangerous moment, and it can be a life-changing moment, but it can be also the thing that changes anything. I'm going to tell you several great truths, and another one is this, is that only the saved and the redeemed can hold and handle this sword without putting themselves in danger. The unredeemed, when they open this book and read it, are in a dangerous place when they do so. It is a a word so powerful that it can destroy you and destroy many things around you. We're going to Ephesians chapter 6. You're going to say, well, get to the point, Pastor. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, where he talks about... uh, this sword. This is this famous passage I've read so many times, and we have covered the armor of God. The children are learning about the armor of God and VBS, and after you've put on all your belts and your truths and shed your, uh, shod your feet with the gospel, it says, then take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Holy Spirit, which is the word of God. You need to take salvation first before you take up the sword. There is no safe way of handling this book without salvation first. I have found that again and again, that the unsaved will pick this book up and not understand it. They'll say, how will I understand it? How can I comprehend it? Unless someone shows it and explains it to me. And goes from the scriptures, from Genesis to Exodus, explaining all the beauty to Revelation of what it was all meant and what it points to and what it's all about. It is so easy to distort and misunderstand this word. We are going to have to have a change in our life through salvation that makes it safe to handle this word. And that change through salvation, now this is going to offend some of you, so hang on is a very basic change. And the basic change is this, that we need to realize that we are not the center of the universe, that God is at the center of the universe, that it's not about you, it's about God. Now that's a major shift. All of you, me included, are born narcissistic. Narcissism is a Greek word that says just saying self-absorbed, that we measure everything according to ourselves. I've got grandchildren, which are wonderful bundles of joys of narcissistic thinking. They are so self-absorbed. And as a grandparent, my job is to feed that narcissism, (laughs) make them more self-absorbed and say how wonderful they are, how perfect they are, because that's not what mom and dad are saying to them. My dad did that to me, I'm gonna do that to my kids. One of the great issues of our day is that everything in society around you tells you that it's all about you. And how do we do that? We do that by saying, you have your truth, I have my truth, you can determine what, how to interpret the word according to what you think is right for you, and I'll do this according to what I think is right for me. That's what a narcissistic person does, a self-absorbed person that says all that matters is what I think. I'm going to 
the truth is this, and the only way to rightly handle this word is that all that really matters is what God thinks, not what you think. Now, I know that's offensive. I find it offensive because I think I'm right all the time. Me and Arnie are trying to convince our wives that we're right all the time. It's been a long project, hasn't it? But the truth of the matter is we're not. The truth of the matter is I'm usually wrong and that God is usually right. And the only way I can rightly understand this word and pick up this dangerous sword is to begin to realize this isn't a book that reflects my thoughts. This is a book that challenges my thoughts, my beliefs, my character. And rather than just sit down to interpret this book, I realized, and this was a life-changing moment for me when I realized this book is interpreting me. It's translating my life and showing me who I really am. And that is a dangerous place. The Bible is very discerning in its understanding. And if we can move beyond our self-absorbed life and actually want to hear from God, we can get delivered from our narcissistic distortion. But unless you are born again, you'll never really get there because all you'll have in your life is yourself as the measure of all things. We don't just study the Bible. When you study the Bible, you just read what's in there, and there's a lot of people who say, well, I want to know what the author meant. I don't really want to know what the author meant. I've taught, been in classes, and I've taught many classes and on what we call form and redactive criticism and everything else, and we'll go into linguistics and historical background, and we could do all that today. We'll pull up the Greek and what it originally meant, and the effort there is to determine what did the author really mean, but when you get to a certain level of reading the Bible, you're not really interested in what the author was saying. You want to know what God was saying through the author. Because his word is constant. I think Paul's amazing. I love Peter. I love Ezekiel. I love Isaiah. But I love what God says through them more than I love them. I think you guys are brilliant. I think you're wonderful. You have so many great stories to tell me. And so many pearls of wisdom to drop upon me. But what I'm really listening for is what God has to say rather than what you have to say. And every once in a while, it comes through. Wouldn't it be great if it came through more than what it does now? The Word of God isn't just for study. It is to be discerned by the Bible. The Word of God cuts deep, and it reveals as a sword. It reveals the difference between self and God. It reveals the difference between soul and spirit. It is the separation of the two that occur in our life. In Hebrews chapter 4, in Hebrews, it says, starting at verse 12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. The piercing as far as the division of the soul and of the spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. 
So when I pick up this sword, I find it comes after me right away, which is kind of dangerous. And I begin to realize that my thoughts are not God's thoughts. I don't think like God, but I want to. But he challenges the way I've been thinking and what I believe. And this sword has been plunged deep into me occasionally, convicting me and saying, John, you're you're not just way off, you're way, way, way off, and you need to change the way you think. I've allowed this sword to do its work on me, and, and it's not always easy, but it changes the way I think, and it even questions the intentions of my heart. Is it easy for you to understand the intentions of another person? Have you ever misunderstood what someone said to you? This is modern day, what do they call that? Reality TV, that's what it is. Misunderstanding what someone says to you. That's, the, that's what we would call drama in TV now, misunderstanding. And then all the conflict that arises from that. So if my own wife and I, or your spouses, if, if you misunderstand the one you live with most of the time. How are you going to understand the intentions of this book if you can't understand the intentions of the people you live with? It's one thing to hear the words, but to know what the words mean or what their intent is, that's a whole other story. And one of the reasons that we don't hear each other and what we intend is because we project. You ever hear that word? We project what we're feeling that day and where we're at onto what the other person says. And some days there's just no winning. And, and we misunderstand each other all the time. This is a normal conversation that we have every day. Let alone sit down with the record of what God has spoken and is speaking to us now and say, what is the intent of what God is saying without projecting on it my junk? If the word of God does not come with power and authority that says, this is what I intend for you to understand, John, something beyond the words has to show up to correct my interpretation of it. And one of the reasons I don't simply ask, what did the author intend, is because the Bible tells me that no one knows the intentions of a heart except God. So I have to ask God, what were you trying to say through that man or through that woman or through this story? And I found out that God is saying so many things. And he usually takes the kindergarten approach with me. He says, John, I just want you to understand this for now. It's enough for you. Uh, If I told you everything that I intended to say in this, it would break your brain and you wouldn't understand it. So this is for you for now. And I've been growing with the Lord and understanding more and more as he brings me up through the schooling that he gives me to understand the intent of his heart. But he also judges the intent of my heart that keeps me from correctly handling and understanding this word. Unless you are born again, you will never really understand it because you will always have this flawed being where you And only you are at the center of who you are. 
When you are born again, you begin to, Jesus said in John 3, see the kingdom of God. And it's impossible, he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you, one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he tells Nicodemus later on, even enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And he said, are you a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify we, what we have seen. And you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you did not believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from the heaven, the Son of Man. And Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him will have eternal life. So he's talking to a biblical scholar there, and he says, you don't understand, even despite your years of reading and studying the Torah, you don't understand what I'm talking about. And he says, that's because you are not born again, Nicodemus. You're a great scholar, but you don't have God at the center of your being. All you have at the center of being is you. How can you, you interpret everything according to you? It is the measure of your life, of what is possible. When you're born again, you confess your sins, you receive Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes at the center of your being. Jesus becomes king of your heart. And now you have a reference point that is not you, that it's all about him and not about you. This word of God says you can have that. I, I find this word heals and judges like a two-edged sword all at the same moment. You ever read John 3:16? For God so loved the world, do you know this one by heart? That he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Oh, I love that. We quote that passage, the message of love and forgiveness and salvation from sin. That's one swing of the sword. And then the sword comes back in the very next verse that no one ever quotes, which is verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, verse 19, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Well, that's not warm and fuzzy anymore. <laughs> Maybe we stay in 16 and just ignore 18, 19 like everybody else. But that's the nature of this book. It cuts both ways. It forgives, but it also judges. It heals, but it also wounds. It can give you new life, but it can also destroy. It's a dangerous thing to put in the hands of any child. And yet here we have this amazing gift that's just been around for 500 years in my language so I can understand it and comprehend it. And God has given us this dangerous thing to understand it and to be, make it work in our lives. The sword divides, it judges, it even gives uh, war as it launches into the battles that need to be fought. I want to go to Matthew chapter 10. I'm skipping all over here. 
You can keep up with me if you want to try. This is what we call a sword drill, where you try to find out where the preacher is at. Matthew chapter 10, that's in the gospel sections after the songs. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew is where we are at. We're in verse uh, chapter 10. And then I'm going to read uh, verses 34 through 35. You have a red letter edition of the Bible. That's the words of Jesus Christ that are said here. Here is what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34. Do not think I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against the father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. This sword is what brings division. It divides sheep from goats. It divides those who believe and those who don't believe. There's no Switzerland in here. There's no neutral ground. There's no fence to ride on. It says terrible things like, choose you this day whom you will serve. Make the choice. One way or the other, there's no middle ground. You're in, you're out. But you get a choice, for the sword gives you one. And there will be people who will choose to reject this and people who will choose to embrace it. Within my lifetime, as I have picked up this word and and have read it and became a minister, there's been a movement where they're advising me and pastors like me to say, don't get too controversial, pastor. Don't drive people away. Just uh, preach a message of love and grace, and people will come in. One of the largest churches in America is down in Texas, and the minister there never preaches one edge of the sword. He only preaches love and forgiveness. But if you are only preaching one edge of the sword and not the judgment that is also found in John 3, 17 and 18, what are you saved from? You're not saved from anything. If you're already loved and you're already good and you're already in the right place, what's the point of salvation? Why did Jesus even die on the cross if you're all okay already? You didn't need it. The only reason he would do it is because there is a judgment. There's something great and terrible to escape. A judgment that is already here that the word judges me on and the judgment that is to come. The sword divides, it judges, and it wars. In Isaiah it says, we all like sheep have gone astray, each unto his own way. But all the iniquity of us all was laid upon him, which is Jesus Christ. It is because we have gone astray, each unto his own way. That's the very definition of a self-absorbed life. I'm going to do it my way. Sinatra started singing the song, and we all followed. (laughs) The great anthem of our age, I did it my way, and that's made all the difference. That's what God judges. Your way is not the best way. I know that could offend you, but God's way is the best way. When you are lost, you need to be found. And when you are asleep, you need to be woken. I don't like people who wake me. 
I value good sleep. I've had a migraine for three weeks now. And uh, it's been difficult. I, I don't get the sleep that I want. So when I am asleep, oh, it is so sweet to sleep. Any of you enjoy sleep? Do you resent the person who wakes you? My wife has learned to jump back when she wakes me up. You know, my arms go flailing like this. What? What's going on? Why did you wake me? I don't want to be woken. I wake up grumpy. We resent being woke up. And when the Word of God wakes you up to reality, we resent it. When it judges our thoughts of being way off and lost, we resent it. And when the Bible says you need to walk by faith, it means that you need to lose control over your life. And we've been working so long to get control over our lives, haven't we? I finally got it all under control. I've got all my bills paid, and my kids are finally obeying me when I tell them to do something. And my wife finally agrees I'm right, and that's great. And... and, uh, I finally got the guy I wanted in office, finally got into office after all this time. And, and then someone walks along, and the preacher, the Bible, the sword comes along and says, no, you've got to let go of all that. You've got to let God be in control of it. Because you being in control is a bad idea. I knew a, tr- a lady in my last church, and uh, I was uh, officiating at her funeral, uh, she was famous for saying she, f- she believed that if she could become dictator of the world, she could solve all problems. All they had to do is do what she said and it would all be fixed. I bet some of you think you are that person too. That if we would just do what you say, everything would be fine. I have terrible news for you. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be. It would be horrible. Only when we listen to God, only when we hear the words coming through this sword, do we begin to understand what needs to take place. This sword can go deep and divide and discern us in so many ways, but it goes deep into my relationships and even causes division among friends, among family, amongst nations. It is the great dividing point in our world and has been, especially in the last 500 years. Right now, there is a battle being fought. Right in this room right now, even as I share this word and as I express it to you, there is a battle being fought. There are many voices being spoken in your head. And we're only steps away from knowing God's word to us. There is darkness. And when we step into the light, it can be a difficult thing. We constrain against the chains that hold us back. Those chains are sin. And that sin comes into life because of the lies that we believe. We believe lies so many times. And all sin is based on the deception that the enemy sows in your life. Jesus Christ said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The sword is a word of truth. And it can shatter any chain you have by dispelling the lie that holds you back. But in the end, you have to choose. You have to choose the sword over the lie that you believe. 
you have to believe that God loves you, that Christ died on the cross for your sins, and that he can sever you from any deception that is in your life. And if you say, there's no deception in me, Pastor, I have no lies, I only believe the truth, you are deceiving yourself right now. David thought he had it all nailed down. And then he realized that he didn't. And he said, search me, O God, and if there be any sinful way in me. He was asking for the sword to plunge deep and discern his heart. Show it to me. Give me a clean heart. Create in me a clean heart and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He wanted to know the truth because he realized it was the only way. In his arrogance, he thought he was all right. But in his sincerity to God, he asked for the sword. You could strain against the chain, but you can't break three unless the Lord were to do a battle right now for you and break that chain and dispel the lie. The time is short, and we won't always have this opportunity. We've had a few hundred years with this word, and even though it's available to everyone, there are a few people who actually read it and understand it looking for God to speak to them about their lives because it is difficult for us to allow God to speak to us about our lives. This is a hard book to read because it's a personal book. It talks about you in here. Your name is in there. Your character is in there. Who you are is in there. And then there's a cost in there for you, a cost that a lot of us aren't willing to pay. But what you will gain if you will pay the cost is everything. What evil wants right now in this room and in your life is status quo. He wants you just to go on like you've always gone on. Just uh, don't rock the boat. Let life be normal. Just do the everyday things that everyone does. Just reach the minimal level of a moral life so you appear to be good. And don't worry too much about it. He's probably telling you that pastor up there, that Pastor John, he's too judgmental, pig-headed, and self-stubborn in his own ways. Who is he to tell you these things? He's not perfect. How can he tell you these things? Well, that's because I'm not telling you these things. I'm telling you what God says in this word. It's not me. And if it's bothering you, I don't have the power to do that. I've had a lot of people after a service when I've preached, who will say, Pastor, why were you picking on me? I wasn't. <laughs> but you were talking about my life. It was like you read my mail. I haven't been reading your mail. I'm not Google. I don't know what you're up to. There's probably someone reading your mail, but it's not me. It's God who's speaking to you. It's not me. When conviction and when all that comes upon us, that is the work of the Spirit responding to the sword. And he is telling you that the days are short. And the sword will shatter your chains if you'll strain against it and come to him. And soon the sword will come again in a way not to deliver to you. The sword will come again to judge this world. If you go to Revelations chapter 1 and you will skip around in Revelations just for a little bit, if you would. Everybody starts sweating bullets when you go to Revelations. <laughs> Here we go. Revelations chapter 1, verse 16. In his right hand, he is capitalized. This is Jesus Christ, right? 
In the right hand of Jesus Christ, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a two-edged sword. There it is again. And his face was like sun shining in its strength. The sword is what Christ holds. It's what he wields. It's what he speaks, and it's the authority he has. It says in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. This is Jesus Christ himself, and this power of this Word brought this world into existence. And it also tells us that the power of this world will bring this world to an end, and that all people must answer to this Word of God to Jesus Christ himself. Revelations 2, the next chapter over, verse 12. And the angel of the church of Pergam write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, the one wielding this word that is speaking to you is Jesus Christ himself. He's doing it through the Holy Spirit in this room right now. And he says in 16 of chapter 2, a little further down, therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly. I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. The word of God is for war, to divide the righteous from the unrighteous. He would like to sort you out now rather than sort you out later. It would be better now to know your status before God, repent and come into the kingdom of God, and then discover the other side of the sword, which is salvation and redemption and forgiveness and the changed heart and mind. Literally, the way you think will change. I've been leading a few people to the Lord, and it's fun to watch because I see the way they think change. I see light come into their eyes. I even see the expressions on their faces change because God works from the inside out. Now, if you don't receive and are born again and the word doesn't cut deep and you don't repent, then you get status quo. Life will go on as it always goes on. You'll be asleep. You'll be unaware. And life will sort of have a stale taste to it and won't really have any meaning or significance at all. Isaiah, if we go to the Old Testament, We'll pick it up at chapter 11, verse 4, says this, But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, and this breath of his lips will slay the wicked. With the breath of his mouth, with the sword, with the word of God, he will judge. Have you ever heard of a thing called social justice? Is that different than God's justice? It absolutely is. Social justice is when you and I socially come to agreement about what is right and what is wrong. And what happens is those who are in the majority, the have-nots, decide the haves should turn over what they've got. Social justice. Social justice is a pity party for narcissistic people. That's what it is. It's not the justice of God. The scripture says the justice of God, the judgment of God is coming. And when he comes, he doesn't say, who mistreated you? He'll say, are you going to own up 
to your own mistakes? Will you be brave enough to say, I own it, it's all me, I'm responsible for the situation I'm in. And if I'm not right with God, it's because I didn't choose him. He certainly offered it, but I didn't receive it. The judgment will come, and that day will be a great, terrible day. And he will slay the wicked. There is an irony in our age when all around the world people are crying for justice. But when true justice comes, we won't want it. Because it will judge us. And we will be found wanting. And we'll be light on the scales. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 8 says this. That the lawlessness, lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. And Jesus is coming with that sword. It's already here. We're hearing from it now. It is sorting us out. It is revealing who we really are and what our need is. But when it comes in the hands of Jesus Christ at the second coming, it's not going to come softly. It will come to judge evil once and for all. And we want injustice to end. We want that wrongs all ended. We want peace on earth. But that won't come unless the judgment of God comes and it destroys evil on this earth. Whether we are judged with all evil or set free from the seductive power of evil, it's all about timing. If you come now, strain on your chains, you'll break them. If you wait, you'll be judged with a host of unrepentant sinners. You'll say, well, what great sin have I committed? I grew up in a pastor's home. I'm a second-generation minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've heard and known the love of God my entire life. I've never been not in his presence. But my understanding has increased over the years. But when the Lord convicted me of sin, I was convicted of the one great sin that is greater than any sin you could confess here today. Should we have a contest? You try to warm up me on this. See if you got a bigger sin than this. My sin was this, that Jesus Christ had offered me salvation and I had refused it. There is no greater sin that Jesus Christ would die upon the cross for my sins, pay the full penalty of it, and I would treat that as a worthless act. It wasn't really necessary. It was, there was no point to it because I didn't really need it until I recognized that day and I said, man, boy, do I need it. And what Jesus to me was, did for me was the greatest gift that anyone could ever receive. Now, I've rejected it several times over. The biggest sin I've ever had to confess was the rejection of Jesus Christ. And well, that's what this sword does this very day, this very moment. If you haven't made him Lord and King of your life, you have rejected. If you make him Lord and King of your life and you turn it all over for him, you give him all the control and confess all your sin and let him be in charge, then you can receive the forgiveness and the chains can be broken. But there's no middle ground. You can't just sort of reject him and sort of accept him. You can't just make it up on your own. 
there are people in the modern age that think that God is an IKEA do-it-yourself assembly project with extra parts if you need them. That's not what this is. It's not a cheap gospel. It's an expensive gospel. Jesus gave you everything, and he's expecting everything from you. Well, I'll give him 10%. No, he wants 100 of everything. He wants it all. You know why God wants it all? It isn't because he is a control freak. Because whatever you have in your life, whatever is good and wonderful in your life, is not under his protection unless he has it all. He wants it all. He doesn't want one bit of your life to be mishandled and corrupted by the enemy. And if you don't turn it all over to him, the enemy has an open door. There's no halfway in this. It's all or nothing with the Lord. And we have to learn that hopefully right now rather than later. The word of God is a two-edged sword. It both sets free and it judges. Now is the time to come to Christ, to repent and be forgiven. Let the word of God do its work. Believe what you know to be true in this moment. Receive from the Lord what you could never do on your own. And make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. One last verse. Could I give you one little bit? One last swing of the sword. Revelation 22, right at the end, verse 17. The Holy Spirit and the bride say, come. And there is the bride is the church. So the Holy Spirit is saying, the church right now is saying, come. And let the one who hears, if you hear this, say, come. And the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost, come. And receive it from the Lord. Would you just bow your heads with me for a moment? We have sat and we have heard the word. The Holy Spirit has been in this place and he has been speaking. In this sacred moment, and it won't last forever, just in this moment, you may never hear that word of God again. You may never hear that spirit urging you right now. And what you're being urged to do has nothing to do with the preacher up front. It has to do with the, the spirit. And that sword is saying to you and to your heart. If you have held back, if you're a halfway Christian or a 10 percenter and you want to do 100 percent, is the spirit speaking to you right now? If the Lord is working in your life and doing amazing things, we just pray, O oh God, that you would continue to work in their lives. We pray, Almighty God, that you would move in such a way as to bring people to salvation in Jesus Christ this very morning. And as you speak, Lord, I pray that those who want to make that commitment would do that right now. I pray, O oh Lord, that they would find that peace in their heart. If you're that person, if you want to go all the way with the Lord, if you want to begin to your journey with the Lord and you haven't even started yet, if you're that person, just with your head bound, it's just between you and the Lord and nobody else, would you just raise your hand high and say, I, I am one, Lord. I want to be in the kingdom of God. I want to be right with you. You can raise your hand and say, Lord, I'm giving you 100%. I'm giving it all to you and to the kingdom. That, my friend, is the Spirit speaking right now. Are there areas in your life that you've despaired and you've given up hope and you want God to touch and to heal, to manifest himself? He's wanting to do that right now. There is an act of faith. 
that when we stand up and we come forward and we say, I am that one, that we find ourselves on the right side of the word of God, where we stand up and we say, I am going to stand for the Lord and for the kingdom of God. If you're that person this day and you want to do that, we're going to ask you to come forward and stand up front at the front of the church, and we're going to pray for you for those battles in your life. They may be battles against sin, battles with sickness and illness, even as people prayed for me today for my battles, we'll pray for you. It might be for family. It might be for friends. It might be just for direction and purpose and meaning in your life. If you are fighting with addictions and all the troubles of this world and you're just getting beaten up by it, we would like to pull out and unsheath a sword for you today and to go to war for you. If that's who you are this morning, we're going to ask you to come forward and to pray with us. But we're all going to stand together right now with one blessing. If you would stand with me. Almighty God, in this moment, in this place, in this place, in this sacred moment where you have been speaking to hearts, and I, I don't know what you're talking about in their lives, but it is intimate with them. We treat this as a sacred thing, an unsheathing of a sword that is giving us more understanding than we've ever had. I pray you'd give them the courage to come forward as we break and as people socialize and as people grab their hands and say good morning, that they would say, I need to go front and get right with God. That they would have the courage to do that. And Lord, we pray that your word would set them free as they strain against the chains of lies and deceptions. And they find those chains breaking this day. We pray this in your holy name. And as we go from this place, we pray that this word would be on our lips. And that this heart of discernment would be with us, that we would seek your voice and know your will in our life. We pray this in your holy name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. If you want prayer, just come up to the front. Wherever it is, we'll battle for you. But otherwise, go in the name of the Lord. This live recording is made possible by the generous donation and support of our subscribers. If you would like to join the growing community of seekers and believers who support MCC podcasts, just go to our website, www.millervillechurch.org, and you can make your online donation anytime. Our Sunday service starts at 10.30 a.m. and runs till noonish. Coffee and snacks are served. Children's church and child care are available.